You're listening to Juicy Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Bacigalupo, and in this episode, I'll be interviewing Jor Polig. Jor is the author of Rethinking Real Estate and the co-chair of the Urban Land Institute's Technology and Innovation Council in New York. Goodness, and that definitely is as cool as it sounds. Uh, he's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Globe and Mail, Business Insider, and now Juicy Podcast. He's got just such a great perspective on what's going on in the big picture. And considering the pandemic madness we are dealing with, we could definitely use some big picture thinking right now. He's got a really powerful perspective on it. And I'll also say, before we get into it, obviously things are really crazy right now for everybody, particularly co-working spaces, since we can't, for the most part, use our physical shared spaces. It's a big time of adjustment, big opportunity for us to be rethinking how we can um, engage our communities and really embrace the fact that co-working spaces uh, are communities first. And so Juicy is modeling that themselves. You can't do conferences right now or not anytime soon, at least not in person, but Juicy has been right on top of getting organized online. They've already run an unconference, a full day unconference, a full day conference day, and they have got a big slate of new programs coming up. So if you want to check out what is going on with Juicy online, go ahead to juicy.co, gcuc.co, learn about all the things that uh, Liz and Stormy and the team have been cooking up. They really have a very crowded calendar. It's incredible how quickly they've responded. So check out all the things they've got going on, a lot of important conversations, since there are big questions we are contending with with what's going on right now. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll get into some of those big questions in this interview with Dror. Uh, if you want to check out his website while you're listening, it's rethinking.re, uh, rethinking.re, like real estate. And uh, without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Dror Pollegg on this episode of Juicy Podcast. Dror, thanks so much for joining me on the program. I'm excited to have you along. Hi, Tony. Excited to be here. So tell me a little bit about your relationship to co-working. How did you first kind of, how did you end up in this world? So I just uh, finished writing a book, just published a book about the future of real estate. And a lot of that focuses on the office world and the future and even the past of the office world. I started my real estate career almost 20 years ago, actually, as a construction worker. Uh, over in Israel. And after that, I've lived in Australia and in China. And in China, I found myself, my expertise originally is in online marketing and designing digital things. And I found myself doing more and more work for real estate developers, uh, whether it's hospitality companies, retailers, or people that build office buildings or uh, apartment buildings. And uh, very quickly, I kind of switched sides and moved from being a service provider to actually working for a large developer. And we were building we built about 30 million square feet of different things uh, over a decade or so in China. So office buildings, apartments, shopping malls, uh, and a lot of other services in between. Um, and working particularly in China in a market that was very dynamic and also was very young. So, I mean, the China's private real estate market was born only in 1998. So before that, you couldn't even own property uh, privately. Uh, we found ourselves working in a market with no benchmarks, with no history, with no clear, you know, with no service providers to answer your questions when you're trying to plan something. So we had to kind of 
find new creative ways to uh, to come up with our own assumptions when we invested, uh, which I think prepared me to to look at how markets change and to evaluate markets that are not there yet uh, in other real estate categories in other countries. Uh, a few years ago, about five years ago, I had enough of China and I had enough of real estate as well. And I tried to escape back to the world of digital technology, kind of online uh, stuff. I founded a startup that built a location-based social network. So a bit, a bit like a Twitter for where you are, a tool that only lets you chat and see conversations with people that are immediately around you within walking distance. And that didn't go too well as a business, but the only people that were interested in it were once again, real estate companies uh, and people that are trying to kind of create a community and create a social engagement within a confined physical area. And they started coming to me, asking me for help and trying to figure out how to use the tool that we built. And as I was researching what can be done with it, uh, I realized that the startup itself is not so interesting, but there's a lot of other things that software is doing uh, to real estate and a lot of emerging business models that, you know, some of them have existed for a long time, but that are suddenly coming to the fore or becoming kind of relevant for the mainstream. And as I research more and more, I, I realized that there's so much to say about it that hasn't been said. And I started writing a book and speaking about it. And, uh, and at some point that became my, my full-time job. So these days, what I do is really brief and speak uh, at board meetings of large uh, property owners at all sorts of industry conferences, uh, at investor meetings for venture capital funds. So anyone who is investing or exposed to the transformation of real estate, I help these people understand uh, what is happening, what's about to happen, and how different entities are responding to it and what can be learned from that. And how, how did you, so I'm just, I'm kind of personally curious about this. How did you mm -hmm. get into the, uh, into like the circuit of being able to kind of like get into the room of, of like speaking in front of board meetings and things like that? Like you obviously, you know, spent some time establishing yourself as an expert, mm -hmm. but I feel like there's some other layer you have to get at in order to like loop into that world of being able to like be that person that people think of to hire, to bring in. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, people ask me that often and I think people, you know, with the internet, the way it is these days, everyone's looking for that shortcut and like, you know, oh, how can I be like, you know, an influencer? How can I have followers? How can I get people to? How do I get uh, famous immediately, Drawer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I am famous, but I think uh, sadly it all comes back to spending a lot of time and, and having actual substance. You know, I've been in this industry for nearly 20 years. Uh, I built a lot, I deployed a lot of capital, I dealt and negotiated directly with some of the largest investors in the world and some of the largest tenants in the world. Uh, I also studied a little bit that kind of gives more weight to what I say, I guess, you know, I have a master's in economic history from the London School of Economics, I studied finance at INSEAD, uh, and I've lived in a few countries and kind of worked in each one of them, so, you know, in Israel, in France, in London, in Melbourne, Australia, and now in New York, and sorry, and of course in Beijing as well for a decade. Uh, but uh, what really turned me into a, a professional speaker is, is really just creating good content, so, you know, so writing consistently, producing like presentations and things that people shared with one another. Uh, and, and again, doing that consistently over time and gradually people recognize it and start, you know, really asking you to come in and talk and are even willing to pay for it. 
and then if you're strict enough with your requirements and your time, then people learn to value it and appreciate it, again, assuming that you actually have something unique to say. Uh, but in order to have something unique to say, you have to spend a lot of time <laughs> researching and visiting projects and talking to a lot of people and taking notes and, and also getting a lot of context about what's happening now. You know? So reading a lot of business history and biographies and, and a lot of even technical stuff about finance and about construction and about regulation. Uh, and, and ultimately, if you decide to dedicate your time to it, then something good comes out of it. But uh, I guess the short answer is that it's not as fun as it seems. It's a full-time job, you know, so it's fun to like get paid $10,000 to come and talk for 30 minutes, but you have to, <laughs> to put a lot of working days before that in order to get to that point. Uh, so it spreads out. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that you got to work for it and you got to have uh, a real eye for it. And that's, that's just so impressive. And I, I feel like, I feel like I would be interested to ask you about, where co-working fits into the context of this research that you've done to get mm -hmm. to this point in any case but now we have this additional layer of yeah. this historic pandemic that we're dealing with and the implications for real estate and, and all of that and really the last time we had something at this scale uh was so long ago that real estate's changed quite a bit so mm -hmm. To some degree, I wonder how you can apply historic precedent and in what ways, you know, that like, I feel like there's always a way to apply historic precedent, even yeah. when there's unprecedented times. So like, what can you tell me about what's happening right now and, and, and where you see kind of co-working fitting into this? So the first thing I would say is that I think people are too focused on the virus itself and its impact on the office market. And I think that's actually the least important thing that's happening now. I think, you know, how we will arrange the furniture for the next three months or six months is not so interesting. And I think most of the meaningful things that will happen over the next few years will happen because the market is finally reaching some sort of downturn, uh, which means it's becoming more open-minded to, uh, to new things. And it means that trends that have already been happening for the last few years are going to accelerate. Now, they're not going to accelerate, accelerate because of the virus. They're going to accelerate because we finally have some sort of financial slowdown after 11 years. Of financial expansion. So what often happens during crises is that indeed trends accelerate and I think some of the stuff that we've seen over the past few years which meant that companies are less willing to sign long-term leases, companies are expecting much more service, the people who work for these companies see the office as an optional place where you know you have to convince me of why do I have to come into this office and you have to entice me in all sorts of ways uh, and you have to do it on a continuous basis so we'll see more of that. Uh, which then means that, you know, the brand is becoming much more important for office buildings. Uh, and a lot of things that we've seen in the hotel world are starting to become relevant to the office world. So if I'm looking at, uh, I think the most relevant historical precedents are not from the office market itself, but actually from the hotel market, where originally hotels were, I mean, they're always complicated to manage, but they're much simpler than they are today, particularly much simpler in terms of marketing. Uh, because in a world without cars and without kind of instant communication, when people arrive to a new town, you know, they would get off the train station and whatever building was in front of the station, that was the right hotel to go to. So there was, it wasn't a very competitive or dynamic market. Once people started driving around, they could actually get off the car wherever they wanted, which meant that you had to convince them to get off the car next to your hotel. 
at the same time, it was suddenly also possible to use the phone and before that even the telegraph or other telegraph-based booking systems to book things in advance, which meant that the competition on who gets the revenue for their hotel was no longer about who is actually in the best location or next door to the best location, but who can actually reach the customers before they even get to the location and who has the distribution capability, which suddenly created an advantage for companies that are national or very large and, and can spend money uh, on that type of marketing reach. Uh, what that uh, drove in the hotel world was the split between the companies that own the building and the companies that service and market the building to to the customers. So a split between companies that are essentially business to business companies that all they want to do is own a physical asset and you know make sure that it gets a good mortgage and that it's financed properly and maybe that the elevators work and that the heating systems are installed properly. But then completely separate entities that own the brand, that communicate with the customer, that set the service standards, and that even have their own proprietary software systems and marketing systems. And what happened in the hotel world is that these companies ended up being completely separate uh, and specialized. And in the office world today, we're seeing the early days of the same process. So historically, companies that owned the building were also the ones that were more or less operating it. I mean, they could bring in a third party manager, but that manager wasn't really a consumer brand. You know? So like a Cushman or JLL or CBRE, they're doing a good job at what they're doing, but you know, they manage the building, but they're not more of a consumer brand that the landlord itself is. Uh, but now that layer of service that uh, office dwellers expect and that uh, intensity and specialization of marketing that is necessary in order to attract them to an office building and in order to constantly attract them back in order to manage their interaction with the space on a daily basis and, you know, booking spaces and booking services and uh, the transparency that they expect, you know, in terms of like, I need to understand what is the quality of the air here and what materials are being used and even how you're treating your own employees that are servicing me in the office. Uh, that thick operating layer uh, is becoming too thick for the landlord to handle on their own. And it's almost even also becoming too thick to handle within the same type of business that is just a property ownership business. So I think gradually we'll see these two businesses splitting uh, into companies that specialize in having a brand, in providing service and in marketing office space and separately companies that are just very good at owning the buildings or building them uh, based on the specifications of those branded companies. So you, I, I get the impression you're taking, like I, as I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm not hearing you talk about short-term stuff about like companies mm -hmm. adapting to uh, like like a, a hygienic practices and things like yeah. that. It, it seems like you're taking a much longer view of this. Yeah, I mean, I think short-term, I mean, I see a lot of nonsense out there that a lot of what I call linear thinking by landlords, you know, they kind of look at something, they do one plus one and think it means two and kind of don't consider anything else that's happening outside of their buildings. Uh, so, you know, kind of like, oh, people are going to come to the office, but they're all, everyone's going to have a private office now, or they're all going to be six or 10 feet apart. Uh, I think, you know, if it's still too dangerous to leave home, it's too dangerous to leave home. If it's safe enough for me to take the subway and walk in the street and take an elevator, I can probably sit in an office next to other people. So I think we're actually going to see more density once this crisis is behind us, not less. Uh, 
also early evidence from China and Hong Kong, the people that are going back to work are not sitting six feet apart from one another. You know, they might be wearing masks for the first few days, but even that seems to be fading off. And because again, if it's safe enough to be in a room with other people, it's safe enough. And if it isn't, it isn't. Uh, but where the virus does tie into longer term trends is that expectation of, of more transparency and the general increasing focus on well-being. So, you know, if I'm going to an office, I want to know that the air is clean. I want to have a natural light. I want to know that I'm not exposed to all sorts of chemicals. I expect a level of transparency that is similar to the, the level of transparency that is now becoming trendy in all sorts of other consumer categories where people buy clothes. They want to know where they're made, how they're made. Some brands are even putting cameras and kind of telling you the story of like, every little thing that went into the product, where it came from, who produced it, what's their name, how are we treating them? Uh, I think we'll see more and more of that in real estate as well as it becomes more of a consumer product uh, and less of just like a, you know, a black box that, you know, someone signed the lease for for 10 years and me as an individual in the building has no say about. Uh, all of that is changing. Right. And I'm wondering where this leaves the dichotomy of kind of the larger chain workspace mm -hmm. uh, entities like the names that you've mentioned versus the kind of wider base of smaller spaces independently run local spaces all over the world yeah. um, because co-working has you know a, a fair share of both and i could yeah. see the larger chains having you know being able to enforce higher standards as far as you know hygienic practices and even technology uh, mm -hmm. around uh you know various things around health um, do, do you have any kind of context for like where the little guy sure. fits into this? Yeah. So, I mean, if we look at the, the hotel world again, for an analogy, it's, it's pretty instructive. So what we saw there is one, of course, size, there, there are great benefits to scale, particularly on the marketing side, but also on the operation side. Uh, so we're going to see several, you know, in the hotel world today, you have several companies that are 30 to a hundred billion dollar companies. In the office world, you don't have even one company like that. This is like a, a known service brand. So I think in five to 10 years, we will have a few multi-billion dollar flexible or serviced office brands uh, that exist. In terms of how the market will be divided, so there will be a few of these giants. Some of them will be new companies, so not the traditional landlords. Uh, there will be a lot of consolidation of the smaller players because I think that's inevitable and, and also because we're in the early days of this industry, there's just a lot of people that are still experimenting with different models. And some of these models are just not financially viable. So they will have to, you know, to fold or they will have to kind of merge with others or be acquired by others. Uh, but I think similar to the hotel world, there will still be room for smaller operators to exist. Uh, like we, I mean, we have boutique hotels in the world and we even have individual hosts in the world that act as uh, quasi hotels. Uh, and in order to do well, these ones will have to be aggregated by other companies that, you know, that are similar to the online travel agents, that are similar to the Expedias and, uh, and Booking.coms of the world, or even the Airbnbs of the world, that can consolidate uh, a lot of supply under a single platform and generate demand for, for those operators. But of course, that will come at a cost and they would you know, take a, a hefty commission uh, off the top. Uh, which again means that only those that are really good at operating or have something unique, you know, a unique location, a unique experience, something else that they can offer uh, that really attracts people, they will be able to survive, but they will always depend on, on larger distribution platforms. 
for their, you know, for their revenue. I see. And so there's going to be kind of this, this dichotomy, which, which I guess we've been seeing the hints of going forward. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that there's going to be the, the people who do this well on the larger end, and maybe even on the smaller end, are going to be learning from what's happened in the past. So can you give me some context as to like, what are the successful brands in this world going to do differently that they're going to learn from, for example, the WeWork story? Uh, yeah. you know, like, where did they go wrong that someone else is going to learn how to go right? Yeah, so I mean, one, the, maybe the biggest lesson that we learned uh, from the WeWork story and generally from the last five years in the office world is that using venture capital to sign leases and generally to finance office operators is not the best idea uh, for a few reasons. One, it's just very expensive. So, you know, you're, you're operating a real estate business that ultimately can generate a single digit yield, let's say, on the asset itself. Uh, and then you're using capital that expects a much higher yield. So even if you do well, you're probably not going to keep your investors happy enough. Uh, in the meantime, there are people in the world who are happy to invest in real estate and expect a much lower return in exchange for a lower risk. Uh, but maybe the worst thing about using venture capital is that it pushes operators to do all sorts of things that are not uh, not prudent, so, you know, to sign leases uh, that are not on great terms, to expand too quickly. Uh, so, you know, ultimately, flexible office, just like hospitality, you know, just like running a Starbucks or like running a Marriott, it's a viable business, but it's very operationally intensive and every cent matter. So you cannot just run around and sign leases at the top of the market and, and prioritize growth at all costs uh, and then not control your bottom line and not look at how much, you know, how much you're actually spending and just assume that, you know, you only think about your valuation and your growth, but not about your cash flow and your profitability. Uh, so I think what we will see going forward is fewer and fewer operators signing actual leases. I mean, we'll see much more partnerships. Uh, if we will see leases, they will be mostly funded by investors that are, you know, that normally finance real estate leases. So, you know, even in the hotel world, particularly in Europe, a lot of hotels sign leases, but they don't go to venture capital investors in order to finance their expansion. They go to people who want to invest in a hotel company. They're a little more modest in their expectations, uh, but also they understand that the hotel company will grow slower and will be more prudent uh, in the way it uses the capital. So they're not expecting the, the company to do anything crazy or to, you know, to become a $50 billion company uh, overnight. Uh, so in short, we'll see more partnerships, we'll see more reliance on alternative forms of capital that are much closer to traditional real estate, so real estate debt, real estate equity, uh, and other types of loans. And, uh, and, and generally more prudence and more responsibility, like thinking like a grown business, not like a startup. So, you know, what makes sense, what makes money, what doesn't make money, and then not like expanding to too many things that are not relevant for the core business itself. So if I were... Uh, like if I were somebody who was starting a co-working space or or, mm -hmm. or already running one, what would you what would you tell me to be excited about, or what would you advise that I kind of that I do you know that would be a smart move for me to 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 think about going forward? Okay, so the, the main thing to get excited about is that the market is getting softer. Now that sounds like bad news, but it actually means that landlords are starting to become more open-minded. You know, 
a year ago, if you would go to a landlord and say, hey, you know, I know how to operate a flexible workspace. I know how to bring great people and to create a great experience. Uh, why don't you partner with me and, you know, we'll do something nice together and make money. Most landlords would tell you, hey, you know, why do I need you? Uh, what do you know that I don't know? And also, you know, I have regular tenants that are paying me full rent and my occupancy is great. Why do I need to like experiment with you in order to just make a few more percents? Uh, so now with vacancy uh, edging much higher, I think landlords will be much more open-minded. And also with traditional tenants increasingly looking for flexibility, I think as landlords try to provide services themselves, they will quickly realize how complicated it is and uh, that it's a business in itself. So again, uh, a bit like you know, when we walk into a Starbucks, we look around and we say, oh, you know, what's the big deal? You know, there's just a coffee machine and some tables. I can run one of these. But then, but then when you try to do it profitably or you try to do it in 500 locations at once, you realize how complicated it is and that you don't really want the headache and that there's someone else who might be more specialized at doing it. So I think landlords are, are coming to terms with that and will be more open-minded uh, to working with partners. In terms of what smaller operators should focus on, I would say focus very much on the bread and butter issues. So don't try to, you know, do anything crazy or reinvent the wheel. People mostly want, you know, a great experience, which means, you know, a reasonable location, reasonable design, nice air, nice light, pretty simple sales and marketing procedures. So, you know, don't make me sign like 5 million pieces of paper or too, too much back and forth. Just make things simple for me. Uh, so again, no need necessarily for the best type of kombucha or for some amazing, you know, uh, wild animals in the lobby or something like that. It's really just about most people just need space, a place to sit that is reasonably comfortable and, uh, and, and for all of the procedures to just be in place and work simply just like they work in most other products and not in real estate. Uh, and then another thing is I don't think that companies should, uh, should subsidize a lot of stuff for the clients. I mean, one of the mistakes for WeWork was that they were trying to give people a lot of stuff for free, you know? So like, oh, you know, coffee and kombucha and, and snacks and whatever. I think that making it easy for people to access those things is important and making it easy for them to pay for them. I don't think people need to get them for free. They just need it to be easy and within access. I mean, people are willing to pay for their own food and their own drinks as long as you make it easy for them to pay. Uh, and likewise, if people require you to take more risks, you know, if they want to sign for one month and not for two years, people are willing to pay for that as well, but you have to make it simple for them. So, you know, there's different prices for different periods, make it very straightforward on what happens if you need to cancel or you need to extend or you need more space or you need less space. People are willing to pay for all of these things, but just streamline it. Don't make them come back to you and then like have to negotiate with you or argue with you or say, oh, you know, I asked for this, but now I want that. I changed my mind. Just make it simple for them and they'll pay. Yeah, I think I, I completely agree that, uh, especially for the smaller operators, fundamentals is just so critical to get right uh, in this industry in particular, because there are just certain things that if you're going to be in this business, you have to do a, like a handful of things consistently perfectly uh, for you to be able to even sit at the table. You know, right? You need to be able to have a functioning space that people can count on because they're going to run their business in that space. Um, and then if they're going to if they're going to differentiate, I think that that's more about um, 
how you differentiate in a way that makes people care about your space in particular. Maybe there's some you know technical way of doing that, but I see that as being more of a cultural thing. I will say though, I don't know that I agree with you on one thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like wild animals in the workplace could be. <laughs> if you could, yeah, Tiger that, King, that could be something that. <laughs> I'm going to report you to Carol Baskin. Be careful. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh maybe uh, maybe a pet turtle, a pet turtle, or something like that could be uh, a, a tolerable middle ground. As but long as there's mutual consent. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, one one example, one example from the hotel world that I like is you know there's a, a chain called Citizen M, uh, and they're very good at focusing on on the function and, and on the job to be done. Like, why are, why is someone in my hotel? What's important to them? How can I charge them for that? And also not give them anything else that they don't want to pay for. So they choose locations that are close to the center of cities, close to transportation, but the rooms are very small, but they have the best beds, the best showers. And, you know, generally they're very easy to operate and to check in and out of. And that works really well because it offers a trade-off, but it's a trade-off that understands the customer really, really well. So people pay for the stuff that they care about, which means I want to have a great sleep, so I need the room to be quiet and dark and a decent mattress. And I need a really strong stream of hot water in the bathroom. And I need to be in a nice location. I don't need a mini bar. I don't need like a shower and a bath and all sorts of things and marble. I don't need anything else or, you know, a TV that makes too much noise. It's enough if there's an iPad. So I think focusing, zooming in on who your target customer is and understanding their needs and providing what they want and not providing anything else uh, is super important. And again, there's so many bread and butter issues that don't work well, even in the co-working industry. You know, things like, how do I book a room? How do I access? How do I notify someone? Uh, that I'm there to visit them? How do I let my guests in? How do I collect my packages? How do I even know that I have a package? How do I forward my mail or find my mail? A lot of little operational issues that I've seen in a lot of co-working spaces that still don't work incredibly smoothly. While at the same time, those companies often focus on all sorts of bells and whistles, you know, oh, we're going to do an event and there's some celebrity and again, kombucha and a tea and whatever. <laughs> Get, get the basics right before you start, you know, with, with the fireworks. I think for most customers, this is what matters yeah. uh, more than anything else. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, I tend to come at things from a cultural perspective uh, of, you know, really trying to build something more meaningful that's not just transactional. But I think ultimately, you know, if I were to start a space today, I would want to have a really great culture and make something really special. But before all of that, if somebody can say, wow, this space has rock solid internet, all of the things that you just mentioned are easy and fast and I can pop into a phone room anytime and it's comfortable and it's quiet and I never have to hear anybody else yelling on their, you know, on their meetings or anything like that's a space that's going to do well. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's deceptively hard to get those operational things solid, right. but it's not impossible. These are solved problems. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's a matter of where you apply your effort early on. Uh, and yeah. I, I think that's I think that's really um, that's really apt. Having visited hundreds of spaces, you're right. Like very few of them get those things really, really, really well. And if you can, then uh, then then you're probably going to really set yourself up uh, to be successful for a while. Yeah. 
Jor, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, just uh, one last thing where, uh, in terms of where people find you, how do we connect with you? How do we read your stuff? I know you've got a book. Tell, tell me a little bit about where, where people can find you. So the easiest place to learn about everything I'm up to is on my website, rethinking.re. So rethinking real estate, rethinking.re. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jorapoleg. Uh, and yeah, I think these are the main places. I'm also very active at ULI, the Urban Land Institute. I'm the co-chair of the Technology and Innovation Council here in New York. So if you're a ULI member, feel free to uh, try to join our council or come to all sorts of events that we do. Uh, and that's about it. And of course, read the book, Rethinking Real Estate. I think it's more relevant than ever. And a lot of the changes that are predicted in the book are now being <laughs> expedited by the virus and the crisis that it brings along. Very, very cool. Thanks for that, Dror. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting you at a, at a future juicy event uh, once we're able to get together in, in person again. Likewise. I hope it's going to be soon. All right. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you, Tony. All right. Bye. Thanks again for listening to my conversation with Dror Poleg, Rethinking.re. And once again, if you are interested to learn more about all of the online programming that Juicy is producing, they're producing international things for uh, really all over the globe now, specific conversations about real estate focused uh, aspects of what's happening and a lot of just really interesting stuff for operators who are going to be dealing with all sorts of questions around how to uh, navigate this transition and preparing their space and handling the money side of it and all of the other things that are happening. So head to juicy.co, check out some of the programming that's going on there. They've also made a lot of the materials from previous events available on the membership program. So check out membership as well to get access to a lot of great resources. And uh, in the meantime, I hope you're doing everything you can to stay safe and to keep your people safe. And for heaven's sakes, wear a mask, take care of yourself, take care of your family and um, keep doing what you can to help your folks help each other. It's uh, an important time now as ever for us to be there for each other. So uh, take care of yourselves. Keep doing all the things you can do. And I'll catch you next time. Keep being awesome.